TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You know, there's a lot of people in America that are very philanthropic. They give lots of money. And they're giving money for education. They're giving money for healthcare. They're giving money for whatever the issue is, clean water. And guess what? Their efforts are being neutralized by the failure of our government. They don't understand that. You can spend all the money in the world, but unless we can get this fixed, you're, you're, just, you're just canceling yourself out. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with Michael Porter and Catherine Gale about their program for redesigning our politics. Everything that we propose, in this case, Final Five Voting, is not just powerful, it's also achievable. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor, then her interview with Catherine Gell and Michael Porter. Design Matters is supported in part by Heffler & Co. online at typography.com. There's nothing more critical to good design than good typography, and good typography begins with the best possible ingredients, the fonts themselves. Hefler & Co. are the designers of some of the world's most beloved typefaces, classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new designs like Operator and Decimal, typefaces that are designed to work well and work everywhere, whether you're designing a print, web, or mobile project. At typography.com, you'll find nothing but the highest quality fonts with complete families, deep character sets, and clever features to help solve design problems, as well as free tutorials to help you become a master typographer. Right now, as a Design Matters listener, you can save 15% on your next font order by using the code DESIGNMATTERS at checkout. That's all one word when you visit typography.com forward slash design matters. Everyone knows that American politics are gridlocked and dysfunctional. 
big problems are not getting solved, and Republicans blame Democrats, and Democrats blame Republicans. What if, instead of seeing this as a political problem, we looked at it as a design problem? What if we took a step back and asked, how can our elections work better? And how can we make laws that actually solve our problems? These are the questions that Catherine Gale and Michael Porter tried to answer in their book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Catherine Gale is the former president and CEO of Gale Foods, who now spends much of her time working on political reform. Michael Porter is known as the father of modern business strategy, and he's an economist and professor at Harvard Business School. Catherine is joining me from her home in Wisconsin, and Michael from his home in Massachusetts. Catherine and Michael, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. So happy to be here. Thank you, Debbie. Michael, I want to start first with a question for you. I understand that you're quite a good accordion player. (laughs) Well, those days are long ago, but that was my instrument when I was growing up. My parents love Lawrence Welk. <laughs> and <doesn't>? accordion <laughs> was a major, you know, instrument on that show. And Myron Florin was the guy's name. I don't know why I can remember that. And uh, so when I set out to get an instrument and try to learn music, which was something we did in our family, uh, I ended up with the accordion. I wouldn't have taken you for an accordion, man. I'm rather impressed. Um, <laughs> You were born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but your dad was a colonel in the U.S. Army. So you, as you were growing up, you moved around quite a bit. Where were some of the places that you lived? Well, uh, we tended to have a three and if we were lucky, four year cycle, you know, and move. Uh, I uh, was mostly in the United States, uh, but we were heavily in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., We were in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which is the Signal Corps Center, the communication part of the military center in in America. We were at Fort Leavenworth, where most people in the Army end up passing through. Uh, So we had a number, went to the number of U.S. locations, but then we had the real privilege, which I I felt was being able to live abroad for various periods of time. And... uh, the first place we went when I was quite young, I was still uh, in grade school, was Taiwan. And it was a long time ago when when there was the shelling going on of Taiwan by the Chinese. And uh, my dad was in the military assistance group that was stationed there from the U.S. We've always been very supportive of that country. And it was fascinating to grow up in a very different society where there were water buffalo along the road and rice patties and all kinds of interesting things. So that really uh, kind of stretched my my view of the world. And then uh, when I got a little older, uh, when I went off to college, my dad was stationed in Heidelberg in Germany. And uh, I couldn't, I didn't live over there because I was going to school, but I would spend every summer over there. I would go over there for long holidays. And I, I got very familiar with Europe. My mother uh, was Czech. And as a result, I was very interested in Europe and she was, spoke multiple languages and we would travel around. And I think that whole background got me very much more opened up to looking at lots of different things, you know, than if I would just have grown up in one city in the U.S. 
You attended high school in New Jersey, where you were an all-state high school football and baseball player. And at Princeton, where you went to college, you played intercollegiate golf and was named to the 1968 NCAA Golf All-American team. Were you hoping at that point to become a professional golfer? I certainly wasn't opposed to the idea, but, uh, you know, it all started with random. I mean, on in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, we got our quarters, you know, military people get quarters where you live on the base. And our quarters happened to be on the golf course on the base. And here was this, you know, our 13, 14 year old. Every day I looked out at this golf course and I was an athlete heavily. That was kind of my identity. And I couldn't resist. I, I started, I got a book. I started going out in the golf course. I started hitting it around. And a few years later, I ended up, you know, with a zero handicap, which was as good as you can do in that dimension. And I loved playing every day. I played in tournaments and um, ended up playing at Princeton and made it to the NCAA tournament. But frankly, I was also at the same time increasingly being challenged intellectually. And I finally decided that, that it would not be satisfying for me, you know, given the DNA in there, uh, for, to just play golf. And so I just, it, it wasn't that I stopped abruptly and never played again, but, uh, but I, I, I moved away from it and decided that I would pursue this bizarre change in direction, which was to get a doctorate and eventually take the job I never thought I would ever have, which is being a professor. So, uh, but I'm happy I made those changes. Was it sports that first piqued your interest in the psychology of competition? Uh, I think it was very much of a reinforcing uh, era that got me very interested in competition, how people compete, how they think about each other, how you how you're able to position yourself to do better against a pitcher or, you know, as a linebacker trying to figure out what was going to happen next. So I, I think there's a definitely a connection between the sports and the business competition that I've ultimately studied and also the international competition among nations. I've done a lot of work on at the country level, not just at the level of, uh, of companies. You went to Princeton, as you mentioned, to study mechanical and aerospace engineering. And after graduating first in your class, you joined the United States Navy. Uh, you served through the rank of captain in the U.S. Army Reserve. Um, what made you decide to follow in your father's footsteps in that way? And what is the biggest thing you learned while being in the Army? Well, uh, first of all, I don't think I was first in the entire class at Princeton, my class. I was definitely in the in the top 20 or something like that. Uh, but I did well enough that I got to go to great graduate school. Uh, ended up going to HBS at the last minute. Uh, I was in ROTC at Princeton, the reserve officers training programs. And my dad had been an ROTC instructor at the University of Michigan like when I was born, you know, I, the military was our family. Uh, it was, a, it's a great institution. It takes care of itself. I, I had very fond memories of the military, uh, and the Vietnam war was bubbling along. And I decided that what I didn't want to do was get drafted. So the reason I went for the ROTC training and then I became a reserve officer was to, to put me on a track where I could use my skills. And uh, I was in what was called air defense artillery. That was my department. And that was drawing on my aerospace engineering training. And um, the nice thing about the military, I wish we had it for everybody. You meet people from all over America, from every walk of life, from every kind of background. And it's all kind of an area where you get to know 
what this country is, you know, and what our citizens are like and what they need. And, and I got a lot of that benefit out of my military training. Uh, but I didn't, I was only, uh, the Vietnam War was winding down and they didn't really need me even to stay my full four-year commitment. So I was able to get out and go back to graduate school. You went on to Harvard Business School. You got an MBA in 1971 and a PhD in business economics in 1973. And you then started teaching at Harvard, where you're now the Bishop William Lawrence University professor at the Harvard Business School. And since 2001, you have directed Harvard's Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness. And Michael, you're you're a real hero of mine. You are widely regarded as the father of corporate strategy and management, and Fortune magazine declared that you have influenced more executives and more nations than any other business professor on earth. So I have a very specific question for you about education. Is it true that when your daughters were in school, you'd buy the subjects for dummies books when they were taking biology or physics and then read them before bed so you could help them study? Well, I did buy some of those books to, be, to get it, to look at some fields that I, I really didn't know, uh-huh. you know, and I was very interested in. Uh, but I was blessed and blessed with two very, very talented daughters, uh, one of whom is a designer, as you know. Yes, she's been on the show. I'm very honored to be able to catch up with my daughter on something. <laughs> and uh, she's now at the New York Times, that you may know that, uh, as a creative director for their R&D activity, and I'm very, very proud of her. And her sister is equally talented, went to Princeton, and uh, then went to Harvard Business School. So anyway, so I, I, if I get any credit for helping them academically, it's very small. I mean, they're, 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 they had outperformed me, you know, when I was their age. So um, it's, uh, but it was fun, and I'm very interested in stuff. So uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, these Four Dummies books. <laughs> I, I really can't even envision what having one of those books in front of you would look like. <laughs> Well, it was interesting. Uh, Catherine, you grew up with your family in Merton, Wisconsin. Your parents ran the family-owned Gale Foods Company, which began as a small three-room creamery in Germantown in 1896. Your family brought quality dairy products to market, and the 1960s Gale Foods pioneered techniques for processing dairy foods that could be sold without refrigeration. Yet you've said your interest in public policy may have begun when you were a Swallow School fourth grader and your mother was a member of the school board. What happened? I am so impressed that you uh, found that story. It's exactly correct. So in fourth grade, I was at the local public school and my mother was on the school board and there was a movement to combine the K through eight feeder schools into a district. And my mother and many people in our district were opposed to that. And this went all the way to a court case. And then the judge ended up deciding uh, against us. And then I can't remember what happened next. It ended up getting turned around. But at the time when the judge decided against us, because of course I was on my mother's side, right? I remember thinking, this is extraordinary. I want to be a judge because then I'll be able to make the right decision. So hopefully, since then, I have 
come a ways in understanding that just because it's my opinion doesn't mean it is always the right decision. But nonetheless, I was struck by that process that we had to go somewhere and ask whether we were going to, you know, we, the citizens of our community, were going to be able to do X or not do X. And I saw the power of it then and really never stopped paying attention, although my interest went, you know, sort of uh, changed in intensity over time. You also followed your father's footsteps and graduated from the University of Notre Dame and then earned a master's degree in education from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., as well as a master's degree in business administration from Northwest University's Kellogg Graduate School of Management. Why two degrees? I originally really wanted to spend my career in education. I remember very specifically a Time Magazine cover in 1984, I'm going to say it was, that was A Nation at Risk. Mm, I remember that cover. And it talked about the education system and how we were, you know, falling behind in the world. And that is what I wanted to be involved in, is changing that. So my first degree was, you know, indeed to pursue that. I was in Washington, D.C., you know, interested in federal education policy. And that's why I got my degree in education. I actually did my student teaching in a public high school there in Washington, D.C. But uh, as Michael was saying, you know, life happens and things change. And then you look back and say, wow, that's interesting how it led me to something else. In my case, it was, you know, very sadly a tragedy. My mother died when she was 46. I was 23. And I had a brother who was only 11 years old at the time. So we, we were five kids, and he was 12 years younger than I was, and we wanted him not to now have a, a nanny. We wanted him to grow up the way the older four kids had grown up. So I ended up moving home to help my father raise my younger brother, Michael. And I suddenly found myself faced with this working mother dilemma as in I needed to have flexibility to take him to school, to pick him up, to you know, do what needed to be done with a child of 11. And I found the job with that flexibility working for Gale Foods. Going into business was never something that I had had the remotest interest in. And now all of a sudden I was at the business and I found it fascinating. I really loved the competitive aspects of it. I loved the analytics. I loved the systems thinking. I loved the innovation. I was really enamored of this. And I said, oh, this is not at all what I've studied. I have an enormous amount of responsibility here and opportunity for change. We were growing and I really was able to, you know, have a lot of say even at that point of what was happening. And so I thought I better go back to business school. So I went to business school, not to put it on my resume or to move up at my job. I went to business school because I needed to learn all the basics. You also worked for the Chicago mayor, Richard M. Daley. Uh, In 2010, you were nominated by then President Barack Obama to the board of directors of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, a federal agency 
that assists American businesses in investing in foreign markets. Did you meet with President Obama? Yeah, I, I've known President Obama since 2000, because when I worked for Mayor Daley, I was working on economic development. And I remember meeting Barack Obama like it was yesterday. I went down to Springfield, our state legislature, you know, representing Mayor Daley, and called a meeting where I was going to talk about what our initiatives were, et cetera. And then State Senator Barack Obama came by himself, and I hadn't met him or heard of him before. And we walked out of that meeting, and I said to this colleague who was with me, oh, my goodness, who was that guy? He is extraordinary. And my father now likes to tell this story, which I don't know if it's true, but he says that I called him that night and said, I met the man who's going to be the first African-American president of the United States. And it was definitely the sort of impression that, that Barack Obama gave off even then. So then we became um, you know, friendly and worked together on these initiatives because he was really in favor of economic development and innovation that we were driving at the mayor's office. You ultimately became the fourth generation CEO at Gale Foods and president of the family business. And this is when I believe you and Michael sort of intersect. Um, How did you first meet? We met through a friend of mine in New York who introduced us. And that must have been in 2010, I think. And then we did this strategy project in 2013. So you hired Michael? Oh, you know, he came and did it as a consultant uh, for a very good price, shall we say. (laughs) Yes. It was really, I mean, it was a fabulous project and of course led not only to a great strategy for the company, but also as, you know, we will talk about, it's what led me to develop politics industry theory. Yes. You ultimately sold Gale Foods to a private equity firm in 2015. Was your motivation to be able to work more closely in politics at that point to sell the company? Yeah, that was certainly part of my motivation. Another part of it was just to put the company in the best position to succeed going forward. So I had come into the company at a time when our fortunes were declining precipitously and then led the turnaround effort. And we were remarkably successful. I loved it, but I also wanted to recapitalize and professionalize the company and, and yet I had family ownership. Now, no one else was involved in the company, but we didn't really, as the owners, have the risk tolerance that was needed to make the required investments to grow the company through its next phase. And of course, at the same time, I really wanted to take my interest in the political system and my awareness uh, which has only grown since then, of what we need to do to fix it and focus on that. You know, I was, uh, I had my daughter at the time. Now I have a son too. And it is cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. You look at your kids and you say, I want a better future for them. And I saw the political system as really the preeminent obstacle to everything that I would want for my children in the future. I was really moved and, and quite impressed 
when I read that when you sold the company, you gave all 350 people that worked at Gale Foods some of the money. (laughs) That's quite astonishing. You know, it was a it was a real privilege. I mean, even just when you brought it up right now, I felt emotional again. We, you know, we don't get where we were on our own. We get there as part of this team. There was never any question when I first started looking at the transaction that we were going to share some of those proceeds with the employees. And every single person in my family supported that. There wasn't one person who said, why do we have to do that? You know, we don't know them. And the experience of living in what I have come to see as sort of this space of gratitude for 24 hours that this gift enabled me to be in. Let me explain. I had written a card to each individual employee, and then there was a, a printed card about the gift. And after I announced the transaction, I spent the next 24 hours going around on every shift to all three of our locations so that I could personally shake the hand of and talk to every person there, not just to thank them for what they'd done, but to talk about you know, why I believed they had a bright future in front of them. And then I would give them this uh, card. And I was able to spend 24 hours, therefore, saying thank you to the people that I'd worked with. And being in that space of, of gratitude was really a gift to me. I loved it. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Michael, in 2011, the Harvard Business School launched the U.S. Competitiveness Project as a multi-year fact-based effort to understand the disappointing performance of the American economy, its causes, and the steps that were needed to restore economic growth and prosperity that would be widely shared across all Americans. And The project identified a set of essential policy steps needed to do so. However, over the course of the project, you found that Washington is making virtually no progress and hasn't made any in decades in addressing any of these steps. And a similar failure to progress has also afflicted our social agenda, where the United States has fallen from being a leader and a pioneer to a position well behind most other advanced countries. At that point, was Washington's lack of any progress at all a surprise to you? Well, it, it, it actually was. I mean, I, uh, I didn't know much about Washington, and uh, it was the U.S. Competitiveness Project that it was originally started because we saw changes in U.S. performance that we had not seen in 30 or 40 years. You know, our country has been remarkably successful economically, and we have a lot of incredible strengths. But we started seeing slowdowns in wage growth. Uh, we started seeing growing inequality. We started seeing a whole bunch of anomalies. Uh, productivity growth was falling. Our skill level was declining. And uh, our public education was really, uh, you know, not holding its own relative to other advanced countries. We were, we were already way back when, uh, you know, the PISA scores, you know, the, those comparative scores across countries about the quality of education system, we just kept going down and down and down and down. And we're still, believe it or not, going down, uh, you know, 15 years later than, than all this was happening. So, so 
when I, you know, I, I met Catherine uh, and worked with her on this very interesting strategy project, by the way, which was a really complicated company. It had, it was not just a simple one business company. It was a multi business company and it was complicated. So this project was a fascinating strategy project. Uh, but, but unbeknownst to me at the time, what was really going on there was Catherine was becoming a real expert on doing industry analysis and understanding competition and thinking structurally about the industry. I, I was around, you know, chipping in from time to time, but she just learned that stuff really, really well. And, and then, uh, going on behind the scenes was the, the computer was saying, wait a minute, political system. Gee, if I, what if I looked at that this way, would that help? And I'd never had that idea at all. I mean, not for a second. I hadn't spent one second trying to analyze the politics industry. I just was trying to understand what, what was wrong from a policy point of view. So I saw myself as a policy guy. And if we have a, a stupid policy in the area of, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure, then Shame on us. But I'd never thought about why we would have a stupid policy in infrastructure and why we couldn't get things done. And that's where Catherine's work really brought a whole new lens, a uh, way of looking at it to me, which I was keenly interested in because, of course, my work intersects very strongly with does government do a good job? You need government to have a competitive economy. You need government to make industries work better. And uh, so um, uh, it, was, it was just a fascinating experience. Completely surprised, you know, com- came out of nowhere. Michael, you've described yourself as a Massachusetts Republican. However, you've stated that prior to your investigation of American politics, the game of politics was more like noise. That surprised me. Why did you feel that way? Well, I mean, I I knew a lot about policy, but I didn't know how the sausage was made. You know, I didn't know how we came up with this policy versus that policy. I guess, you know, given my history and my, the way, you know, my background, I just thought that all the legislatures sat there with their books open and studied this. And then they all came together on the great policy on the right thing to do. And I didn't understand any of all this, this stuff going on and how these people were, you know, uh, thinking about, uh, you know, what was success for them and, and, uh, all the stuff now that's so obvious, the partisanship, the, uh, you know, we, in, in the book, uh, I, I think it says somewhere, in politics today in America, parties would rather not do anything than compromise. And so in area versus area, we would see the, these bad policies and, and, and it was structural. Uh, but I hadn't really experienced that kind of a political system head on. It really wasn't until uh, we got into this work and uh, learned a lot from Catherine because she'd been involved, uh, you know, much more closely in, in our federal level government. I, did, I started to get some glimmers of what was really happening here. And it was totally fascinating. What kind of Republican are you now? Well, I'm a Massachusetts Republican still. What that means is I'm a centrist. I'm more of an independent. I, yes, I'm a Republican, but I'm a Republican that is very much believing in, I'm in the middle and I believe that, you know, we should be collaborating to figure out what the right thing to do is. Catherine, you were born into a Republican family, but you've described yourself as a former Democrat who, after going through what you've called the five stages of political grief, are now an independent, politically homeless centrist 
pro-problem-solving, non-ideological citizen who wants to see the government deliver on its promise to the citizens. And you go on to state that you're being politically homeless comes from your frustration with what you've deemed the political industry complex. And this is a term I believe you introduced in your 2017 Harvard Business School paper that you co-wrote with Michael titled, Why Competition in the Politics Industry is Failing America, which was a strategy for reinvigorating our democracy. What made the two of you decide to join forces to write this rather remarkable, completely provocative paper? Well, after I sold the company, I was now working full-time, but, you know, with a great deal of flexibility in political change. And I was very focused uh, at the time on electing independent candidates, which turned out not to work, and on the system, which is what are the rules that we need to change. And I was working to get other business leaders engaged and also to engage political philanthropists because we needed capital to fund the efforts at reform. And I had an experience repeatedly, which I'll sort of generalize here, although there are specific names behind this. I go to meet with New York or West Coast billionaire who has expressed frustration with the system and its inability to solve any problems. I make the case for these independent candidates that we want to elect. And what happens is I'm sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, this meeting is going so well, I need to ask for $5 million instead of the $1 million I was going to ask for. And before I can get the words out of my mouth, said billionaire looks at me and says, oh, this is fabulous. Catherine, count me in for $25,000. So we were not on the same page at the end of this meeting, which went fabulously well. And I determined that the real cause of that is that the philanthropist, the business leader, did not understand how their money could make a difference. So when they donate the 20 million for the uh, hospital, they knew what they would get. And in some cases, when they donate X amount of money to a you know, Republican or Democratic candidate, they know what they're hoping to get. And yet this reform idea, they couldn't put their mind around. And I saw that business leaders saw politics as some sort of irrational, really unusual type of uh, activity. And I said, you know what, because to me it was 100% clear that it was every bit as rational as what we did in business. So I determined that I would take the five forces of analysis of politics that I had done when I was at my company and use that as the foundation for what I called a thesis for investment. I believed we needed to make the business case for investment in political what I began to call political innovation, and that this would really be powerful in getting the business leaders off the sidelines. So I was determined to, you know, move forward with this and knew what the strategy should be and knew the analysis and had the examples and all of that, but realized that if I wrote it, that it would only have a limited reach. So I asked Michael to join me 
because he brought something really important to the table, which is the credibility of his association with a five forces analysis of politics um, has really enabled the analysis to sort of get past that first hurdle of believability. And having Michael as the co-author really gave the work legs that has enabled us to get to this point where we now have a book that we're very excited about. Well, congratulations. Your book is now published. You expanded your paper quite extensively, and the book is titled The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Down Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Now, Michael, this is your 20th book, but last month you wrote an article stating that this book may be your most important, given that at last count, your first book is in its 63rd printing and has been translated into 19 languages, saying that this is your most important book is saying a lot. Well, my view is I was really good at coming up with economic strategies for countries, you know, for America, for Massachusetts. I d designed playbooks for many of those places. And I got a lot of satisfaction out of that. I'm, I'm doing some of those things still as we speak. But what I, what I came to understand is none of those recommendations and none of those great policy ideas would matter if we didn't have an effective government that would understand and implement those things. So, and what I found was, and what I did understand from America, uh, that America is different. I mean, so I, I worked extensively in Japan. I've worked extensively in Korea. I've worked extensively in, you know, many other countries, in, in Rwanda, in all kinds of countries. And I've had the opportunity of having very strong relationships with usually the, you know, the head of state or, you know, very senior people in that country. And when I look at a lot of these other countries, they have their best people in government. And, they're, they're, and you're sitting around the table is the people that are really out, outstanding people with great accomplishment and great expertise. That's who the cabinet is. That's who the people leading the executive agencies are. They're leading the task forces about, you know, change and what we need to do next. And, you know, when I came back in America, it just wasn't that way. Our government was cobbling together a, a lots, of, lots of very diverse people, some of whom are very talented, but many of whom were you know, we're not, they, they were not approaching this with a, how do we, how do we optimize this? What's the best policy? How do we think about what will benefit the citizens the most? It was, uh, wasn't that process. And my view is in, in America, if we were going to make any serious headway, uh, we're going to have to go way beyond just coming up with good ideas. I didn't, you, you asked me earlier, uh, you made a point that at HBS, our little team, uh, U.S. competitiveness team, we had an eight point plan about what we need to do in America, it was completely obvious. I mean, anybody could have come up with that plan. It didn't take a PhD. It didn't take all this experience. It was, it was you know, 101, you know, and, and yet we couldn't get any of this done. And even people that I knew who were very smart and who were very well-educated, who would one-on-one who would -on -one say, oh, yeah, that's exactly right, when they were in office, nothing happened. So I became convinced that unless we can fig figure out how to get the system working better, uh, then uh, nothing else matters. And I can have another great, brilliant policy idea, but it won't actually get done. Uh, let, me, let me say, too, I, it was very interesting at the time when Michael was going to Washington, D.C. with the eight-point plan, 
and having, you know, meetings with the politicians, he would come back. And if we talked about it, he would say, oh, it's great. They loved it. You know, I think we're going to make this progress. And I would always say to him, no way. They're not going to do anything. They are not going to do anything. Because this was before he had joined the work. And I'm saying, no, they're not going to do it because they're not incented to do it. And he said, no, they really loved it. You know, they said they were for it. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter. And that was sort of the beginning of, uh, of some of my conversation, you know, really convincing Michael of the system design aspects of politics that were in the way of policy. And here we are. What is that now? Eight years later. And they still haven't done anything which also now our book and the previous report shows why that's guaranteed. Because I can tell you one thing, we can all meet eight years from now and absent the kind of systemic changes that we prescribe in our book, we can pre-record the segment then and Michael can tell us that we've done nothing Mm -mm. because that's how it will be. Early on in the book, you state something that blew my mind. There's really no other more elegant way to say this. Um, You state that it's important to recognize that much of what constitutes today's political system has no basis in the Constitution. How is this possible and what is it based on? You know, the Constitution famously fits in our pocket, right? We have the pocket Constitution. So there we go. It's very, it's very (laughs) small. And there are actually only a couple of sentences in the Constitution about how we should elect congresspeople and only a couple of sentences about how Congress should be run. In fact, the Constitution delegates to the states as part of our federal system virtually all of the power to make up the rules of how we should elect our congresspeople. And it is in this system of elections, these rules that we've created for elections, that we have designed the wrong set of incentives. They're the incentives that govern and dictate the gridlock and the inability to solve problems that we see in Washington, D.C. emanate from the design of how we vote. And that's really important for us to know that that's optional. Because this goes back again to what I was saying before, that business people would look at the political system and think, oh, it's so irrational. You know, I need to keep my focus on something I can do something about, as in my business. And then I think in the larger context, all of us would have looked at the system and thought, well, I guess that's how American politics works. You know, I guess that's what must somehow be in the Constitution or Schoolhouse Rock told us it works this way. You know, so um, it's critical for us to understand the role of the states in the design and therefore we need to take responsibility for it because we own those rules. They weren't given to us. And if they're not working, we need to be the ones to change them. You go on to write that most people think of politics as its own unique public institution governed by impartial laws dating back to the founders. Not so. In fact, it is an industry, most of whose key players are private, gain-seeking organizations. How did politics evolve from, I think, what we thought was a public institution to what seems like a very private bougie industry? You know, politics 
in the sense of running campaigns, was always a private industry. Governing is the public aspect of it. But the industry was not as optimized as it has now become. And most people got into, well, let's say many people got into the industry with the desire to, you know, uh, have this public good. But what happens in any industry over time is the players in the industry, because they're gain-seeking, are going to optimize the rules if they can for their gain, or they're going to optimize their behavior around those rules in order to grow their own power and influence and revenues, you know, market size. And that's indeed what has happened in the politics industry. So now the governing incentives that drive what happens in Washington, D.C. have less to do, far less to do, with the you know, choices people want to make in legislating the public good and far more to do with the overwhelming specter of the larger politics industry, these gain-seeking organizations and what's good for the Republican Party and what's good for the Democratic Party, regardless of what's good for the public interest. And I think that the divorcing of the public interest from the interest of the parties is something that's happened over time as the players have optimized around the existing rules and created new ones that protect their own position. How would you describe the political industry complex and why that particular terminology? The term political industrial complex, it comes really from as an offshoot of President Eisenhower's military industrial complex, when he was leaving office in his farewell address, he essentially warned against the misplaced power and influence of the military industrial complex. The idea being that now that there was an industry that was benefiting from the defense spending, that the those gain-seeking actors in the industry, the defense contractors, would, in a sense, be pushing defense policy and military policy and expenditures because that was what was good for them regardless of what what the country needed. And the, the dynamic is identical, which is that now the political industrial complex runs its private gain-seeking organizations, Democrats and Republicans, and they're doing what's good for them. The larger political industrial complex is designed to have everybody understand that it's not just the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It's also the campaign consultants. It's the data providers. It's the media that are channels for reaching the customers. All of the actors in the industry combine to create the political industrial complex. And just as political parties are a duopoly, essentially the political industrial complex is also a duopoly. For the most part, the actors in the industry have divided either to the right or to the left, and they're associated with one of the two major parties. I couldn't help but imagine if consumers were only allowed to hear from two companies on their options for goods or services or only be able to go to two restaurants or to be um, fans of two sports teams, it would be unheard of in any industry except the U.S. political industry. Debbie, let me tell you, I often start my presentations, asking people to raise their hands if they drink beer or wine. And, you know, we move through a series of questions and end up with this analogy to competition and being a consumer, which is why do we have 
you know, 6,000 breweries and 3,000 wineries, and we love our beer and wine. <laughs> but then... And 4 million versions of tomato yes, sauce, too. according yeah. to Malcolm and, Gladwell. And now <laughs> we only have, in what should be our most important market, we only have two choices in the political marketplace. And most importantly, and this is what's interesting, it's not that having two is bad. We have Pepsi and Coke. It's not that having two automatically means they won't do a good job. It's when you have two who are guaranteed to continue to be the only two, no matter whether the customer is satisfied or not, because those two have high barriers to entry. So it's the fact that it's a protected duopoly that is the problem. We need the threat of new competition to force the people in the industry to perform for the customers who should matter. I find it ironic that politics is really the only industry where we're told less competition is good for the people. Do you think that there should be more than two parties? I think that there should be open and healthy competition. So there's no magic number of parties, no magic number of competitors. The point is that there should be low barriers to entry there should be an opportunity for new competition when the customer is not satisfied. If you think about any other industry, if the customers were dissatisfied to the tune of 70 to 90% of the customers don't like their choices, then an entrepreneur would see it as a phenomenal business opportunity and they'd create a new competitor responding to what customers want. But we never see that in politics because it turns out that both sides of the political industrial complex actually do work together very well in one particular way. And that is to rig the rules of the game and optimize around the rules of the game to protect themselves jointly from new competition. And if you don't have new competition, they don't have to deliver results. Both sides can just say what they're for. And even if they don't deliver, you're still gonna vote for quote unquote your side because no matter how disappointed you are, you still prefer what your side says they're for than what the one other choice says they're for. And until we break that dynamic and implement a system where we can have innovation results and accountability, we're gonna to continue to get what we're getting. I now call this free market politics. Uh, it's a term that I wrote the conclusion in the book and it's introduced in that conclusion. And the idea is that free markets deliver the best of free markets, well-functioning free markets, deliver innovation results and accountability. And if we have free market politics, we can have an industry that incense the delivery of those things in politics as well. You know, there's a lot of people in America that are very philanthropic. Mm -hmm. They give lots of money. We have it. That's one of our wonderful attributes as a country. And they're giving money for education. They're giving money for healthcare. They're giving money for whatever the issue is, clean water. And guess what? Their efforts are being neutralized by the failure of our government. And they don't understand that, that you can spend all the money in the world, but unless we can get this fixed, you're, you're just you're just canceling yourself out. And right. we have so many generous people, but we've got to get them understanding that they have to put their weight behind this issue as a root cause. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean they stop doing their philanthropy in completely, but it means that the philanthropy 
is not going to work because this system is really lined up against the kind of things that they're giving for. And uh, so I, I think that's a, that's a very important thing that many people still need to learn. Well, one of the things that really perplexes me and and it sort of enrages me now that I've read your book is is the the fact that so many politicians including people like Mitch McConnell are making a great deal of money for themselves while being a public servant and yeah. it just doesn't seem like this is it should be allowed. Well, I mean they have they have uh, official salaries but they're getting massive amounts of benefit from their office because they have the freedom to do favors for really important people who have really high uh, accountability. So when they intervene, there are good things that come for them. Roughly half of all government officials, when they leave office, become lobbyists at a high salary. And uh, they often don't even have to report it because the duopoly doesn't want the rules for disclosure to be very, very transparent. So you often can't really tell. And this lobbying, not only does it it benefit the industries that are doing it. Uh, we, by the way, we have a whole, there's a whole Harvard Business Review article that has just come out as well, which focuses on the role of business here. We, we believe that business is sort of a co-conspirator with the parties, yes. given the way things work together today. And as a business school professor, uh, you know, we got to change that. That's not who we are as business people. We just got sucked into this very clever game, which can produce some short-term benefits from a company if it gets the right lobbyists to tweak the regulation in the right direction. But it's not, it's not advancing the country. It's not improving our business environment. Uh, it's leaving us with a lot of citizens in distress. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of bad things that come around it. So uh, we've, got to, uh, we've got to get business to step up here and change its playbook. Uh, so the our HBR lays out what the playbook is that business has been using. And the answer is heavy lobbying, roughly $6 billion every single year to influence legislation in their favor, special interest. And uh, there's heavy spending on elections and they account for some huge percentage of all federal election spending. And they use sheer money to fight off citizen ballot initiatives that would go against them. You know, why did the, the opioid crisis? It was solved <laughs> uh, some years ago. Uh, we had increasingly uh, rational legislation that would regulate better the prescriptions for opioid drugs and why doctors wouldn't overprescribe. But, a, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars were spent to defeat that. Uh, all across the countries, and uh, they got away with it. And uh, 2,000 Americans, you know, are gone. So the business aspect of this is something that I have personally a great set of personal compulsion to work on this because of, uh, I, think, I think we, this is not what we stand for as business. It's not what we should stand for. It's not what companies should be doing. And I think we have a, a chance now, given, again, the dysfunction Plus, I think we have the opportunity to take advantage of the wave of change in business. And business is increasingly becoming much more stakeholder-oriented, 
having a corporate purpose, trying to do more good for society. We're seeing that bubbling at a very high rate. And when, when companies think about, oh yeah, we're going to have a corporate purpose and we're going to try to advance society, not just their shareholders. And then they understand how they're actually aiding and abetting this broken political system. We think it's time for business to shift its agenda. And if we got business to actually get on this agenda for innovation and and start to push back against the the party system i think i think things would happen a lot faster than if it's just you know ordinary citizens trying to do it but i i don't think we have to have business to get involved in this reform or innovation movement but i think if we can it's going to be it's going to be a shot heard around the world by the parties that's for sure do you think that businesses would be willing to take this on before the groundswell of citizens insist on it? I mean, well, that's, the, I, that's know, the concern I always have about businesses getting on board. Yeah, well, there, there will be some businesses who don't want to touch this, but, and by the way, that's because they, they have been able to prosper. Not, not everybody, but in, ma- in many cases. Today, for example, if you give enough money to the Justice Department Antitrust Division and the Federal Trade Commission, you have a much higher probability of getting your merger deal approved or not, not, uh, you know, not fought. And the high, big tech companies now are just massively putting money into, into this lobbying game because they're under antitrust scrutiny and they've, they're, they're viewed as, you know, misusing our data and all that. So, so there's going to be people that are going to fight this in, from the business community. But, but we think overall, and I would bet a lot on this from knowing so many of these people personally, I, I think we're, we're, in a, we're in an era where once business, nobody's ever really said this before, frankly. I, I'm not bragging at all, but nobody said, look, business, look at what you're doing. Do you think it works? Do you think it's good for business? Do you think it's where we want our country to go? Nobody's really even raised it. And uh, I think raising it in combination with this book is hopefully going to be influential now. And I, I, maybe I'm hallucinating here, but I think a lot of companies are going to resonate and start to say, do we really need to do all this lobbying? Do we really need to spend all this money to try to defeat what the citizens want? Uh, is that really a good idea just for us? But I think, frankly, the, the likelihood for business to, to listen to this has been heavily influenced by the president of our United States today and how that person has behaved. And I think, I think it's been seriously interested by how much we're just fumbling all of our important problems in the country. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a multiple good moment. And I'm, but, you know, who knows? Uh, I, they may have people screaming at me and say, oh, you're naive. You don't understand how it works. You know, <laughs> if we don't give this money, then we're going to get tr- in trouble. Our competitor's going to take over. And we would say, uh, yeah, I can see why you say that, but no, 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 that's not the way it's going to work. I w- it would be remiss of me not to ask, given that I have you here, um, how are you feeling about the future of our economy? Well, I think if we can somehow get the spread of this virus under control, which we're having pretty good progress in in, in some states, but other states are, are not doing as well. Um, and, and by the way, sometimes that's pure partisanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yes. the governor doesn't want to, quote, restrict what citizens can do, even if we're trying to save lives. I mean, come on. Uh, if, if we can get that virus under control and we can get our citizens to comply with what we know we need to do, and we've got all this, this, this uh, divergence and, and, and uh, 
uh, partisanship that, uh, and, and it's all, it's not real. It's, it's, it's made up. It's what people have been taught that this side is the opposite of that side. It, it's scary to me how many Americans have rebelled. I know. I, I just and, simply and, and, don't yeah, understand I mean, it. I, I have, uh, I go down to Naples, Florida. Um, haven't been down there in a while, but when I was down there earlier this year, Naples had it left its beach open, its main beach, okay? And the East Coast Florida beach communities had not. They had closed their beach. So guess what happened? People came from all over Florida to Naples. The beach was completely packed and people were in scrums of 50 people, all, you know, all to, my God, you know, why, how does that happen? How can people be so disconnected from, you know, what's good for our society? And, and I think... We've been taught for decades now by the political process that you should get what you want and you deserve what you think is right and you, can, you should be free to do whatever you want, you know, even if that's bad for our society. And, and, and that's been another sort of hidden cost of our political system. How do you recommend we improve the chances of getting better candidates to run for office and actually win? Here, this is interesting. In our work, we are focused less on changing who gets elected and more on changing what whoever gets elected has the freedom and incentive to do in Washington, D.C. So we are party neutral in that sense. If we implement the changes we propose, which are called final five voting, it's changing how we vote, and Democrats and Republicans, for the most part, still get elected, it is still likely that we will see the same people do different things. So when we ask ourselves, how do we get better candidates? I'm for better candidates. I mean, we should have better, quote unquote, candidates in, in every case. That would be good. But right now, if you had better candidates but the same system, you'd get the same results because it's not so much the candidates. Any candidate that goes into the existing system is a piece of that puzzle which spits out reliably what it spits out, which is this gridlock and uh, lack of problem solving. So we don't focus on how we get better candidates, although I admit that I certainly know once it's a more satisfying job, once you can actually get things done, more people, which therefore should increase the supply, more talented people will see this career in Congress as something that's attractive to them. But it's not the core of what we go after. Can you describe for our listeners Final Five Voting? Final Five Voting is the package of two changes that we must make to how we vote in order to get the benefits of healthy competition in politics. Number one, we will eliminate party primaries, which push the candidates further to the right and to the left and make it impossible for them to work together in Washington, D.C. to solve problems because they have to look over their shoulder at their next party primary if they want to do anything in a bipartisan, you know, compromised fashion on big issues. We replace the broken party primary with a nonpartisan 
top five primary. Everybody's on the same ballot, and the top five finishers advance to the general election. Then we will have a robust, I mean, there'll be five people competing. We have a robust and dynamic competition of ideas and candidates. And in the general election in November, we now implement ranked choice voting. What this means is we, the voters, have an opportunity to rank our candidates in order of preference, as in this person is my favorite, all the way down to the fifth choice, you know, over my dead body do I want this particular person to win this race. And through a series of instant runoffs, which, you know, we explain in detail in the book, those preferences get translated into electing the candidate that has the broadest appeal to the most number of voters. But most importantly, using ranked choice voting gets rid of what we call the spoiler problem, which is why we never have any new competition now. So let me step apart from final five voting for a moment, Debbie, just to explain the spoiler problem. The biggest reason we never see any new competition is because right now any new competitor outside the two parties is usually considered to be a spoiler. So if you go back to 2016, if you're on the left and you like Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, you're not supposed to vote for her because you'll take votes away from Hillary Clinton, spoil the election for her, and sort of inadvertently help elect Donald Trump. And the same was true on the right. If you like the libertarian candidate, Gary Johnson, you weren't supposed to actually vote for him because you'd take votes away from Trump, spoil the election, and inadvertently like Hillary Clinton. And that label of being a spoiler not only keeps them from ever getting many votes, but it basically keeps every new competitor from running in the first place because they know that the best they can do is be a spoiler. When we have ranked choice voting, that problem goes away entirely and we can actually vote for who we want and there's no reason why anybody uh, should be kept out of the race. So final five voting does both those things. It eliminates the eye of the needle that is the partisan primary and it eliminates the spoiler problem in the, in the general election and therefore will get results, innovation and accountability in politics. Where do the final five come from? How do you get that final five? What are they final from? What happens with final five voting is that we get rid of the party primary where you vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. And instead, now, when you go to the voting booth on primary day, there's only one ballot. Everybody who's running, regardless of affiliation, Republican, Democrat, Green, Independent, New Party, they all run on the same ballot. You cast your vote. And when the polls close, they add up the totals and the top five finishers, regardless of affiliation, automatically advance to the general election. So the general election can now be a competition between three Republicans and two Democrats or two Democrats, two Republicans and an independent. It's a dynamic set of candidates and ideas because there's no way that two accurately reflect, you know, the preferences and ideas of the, you know, voters. So even now within an ideology or a party, the Republicans, you could have some more intra-party competition. So that's how we get to five. And it should be the right amount. I call it like the Goldilockian right number, you know, not too many, not too few, that would allow us to not just have a competition of candidates, 
but also allow for a competition of ideas. Because the way our system is designed now, Debbie, puts so much focus on the candidates and the personalities competing. Whereas here, we might have, you know, the top couple people competing on the basis of their candidacy, but we might have some other people running in the general election now who were in the top five that are bringing forth new policy ideas and they're campaigning almost solely to bring those to the fore. And that's where we can get, uh, drive some of the innovation here. You mentioned before that there's really a systemic problem here. And your book outlines how political stagnation in the United States is not the result of a single cause, but rather a failure of the nature of the political competition that has been created. So in other words, a systems problem. And you go on to state that too many people, including many pundits, Uh, Political scientists and politicians themselves are laboring under a misimpression that our political problems are inevitable or the result of a weakening of the parties or due to the party's ideological incoherence or because of an increasingly polarized American public. Those who focus on these reasons are looking in the wrong places. The result is that despite all the commentary and attention on politics in recent years, there is still no accepted strategy to reform the system and things keep getting worse. Your book helps deconstruct how this happened and ultimately puts forth a remarkable strategy for reinvigorating our democracy. Do you think it's really possible to foster cross-partisan problem solving? Yes. Here's how you foster cross-partisan problem solving. By making that an activity, an endeavor that contributes to re-election instead of right now working in a cross-partisan way is very likely to get you to lose your primary election. So we have to, here's the ultimate design flaw. I'll break it down to the simplest design element of our political system. Right now, there's no connection between members of Congress acting in the public interest and the likelihood that they would get reelected, which is to say, if they do their jobs the way we need them to, they're likely to lose those jobs in their next primary. Now that is a crazy design and it's entirely optional. So with the prescription we have, final five voting, we create the intersection between getting results in the public interest and the likelihood of getting reelected. And that is, you know, the core focus of our work. But the other thing that's really interesting about our work is that everything that we propose, in this case, final five voting, is not just powerful, it's also achievable. And how it's achievable is that the Constitution delegates all the rules about elections to the states, so each state can change these rules individually. Half the states can actually bypass their legislature entirely and use a ballot initiative and put final five voting on the ballot and the citizens can vote for it. And then they've changed these incentives for their members of Congress. In the other states, people can put pressure on their legislature to change the rules for Congress, which they very well may be willing to do. I'm not saying it's easy, but everybody, regardless of ideology, agrees that Washington, D.C. is broken. So therefore, putting pressure on the state legislature and the governors to change Washington, D.C. is quite an attractive argument 
in many ways. It's almost as if it would grow organically state by state until it could become federal. Yes. Final four voting, which is a close cousin of final five, is actually on the ballot in Alaska in November. Two other states are collecting signatures for final four voting initiatives in their states. We have a legislative campaign with bipartisan support in Wisconsin. This is happening around the country. In fact, I predict that in the next 18 months, we'll see a movement for final five voting overtake campaign finance reform and redistricting reform as the most popular national effort to change results out of Washington, D.C. Michael, one of the many things I've learned from your work is that the sign of a good strategy is that it deliberately makes some people unhappy. As you can imagine, the powers that be in this country are not going to like your recommendations for change. How could your proposed framework protect itself or fight back against any organized threat to diminish its power? Well, that's a a very hard question. Uh, I would say that um, the results that we're getting in the current system are awful. And, and every year or issue that goes by, we learn more and more how awful they are. Look at what we did with this pandemic. Look at how government handled that, you know. Why do we have, why has this racial issue been an issue that never goes away? Well, it's because of policies we've set and practices that have come out of government. So I think the, the uh, it's going to be very hard, I think, for the uh, existing, uh, you know, incumbents to somehow convince the public that we don't need to change anything. You know, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, that doesn't mean, uh, it, I think a lot of people are just puzzled and confused by this whole thing. I mean, they don't know why it is the way it is. They see that it is the way it is. Everything we say about partisanship and all that rings true. And then if you read this book, you find out that all these subtle things were done to entrench those, I, those, those practices. And, uh, my my favorite one is how the two parties stole the presidential debates from the League of Women Voters. It used to be run by this independent body that would have a rational process for deciding who should be on the debate stage, which is critical to get the media attention and branding that you need to make it to president. And the parties just decided, no, 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 we, we're going to take control of that. And they work with uh, some supportive institutions that are quote unquote, well thought of to actually do this and take that election process, that election debate away from an independent institution. So now, do you think an independent is ever going to be on the presidential election stage? And the answer is no way. And, and that's just one. And, and the way in which legislation is passed has been evolved and, and, and optimized over time. So, so now, you know, if the Speaker of the House doesn't want it to, a bill, no matter who put it up or no matter how good it is, will never be voted upon. So we've got a system that we've just strangled innovation. We've strangled bipartisanship and collaboration and getting it right and collaborating. 
so I, I think it's going to be uh, very hard for the parties to hold this off if we can just get the citizens to understand what's really going on. So it, this, this, this can be done. Um, I think what we desperately need is for Americans to read about this, think about this, understand what's really happening, and then go out and take the steps that will advance citizen interest as opposed to this weird party uh, duopoly that we have today. Yeah, I do want to ask one one last question, and, and that's really what I want to ask about. Um, you conclude the politics industry by stating that our evangelism will have more impact than any book could ever be on its own. And I'm wondering, what would be the first thing you'd recommend anyone do to help evangelize this kind of change? What we need people to do is to create the organizations or join the organizations that are working for these changes in their state. So some states already have the movements up and going and they need anyone listening to this podcast to join that movement and the states where they don't have that, they need to found it. I have now founded an organization called the Institute for Political Innovation and one of our key goals is to assist people like your listeners who want to found these organizations, who want to find uh, the efforts that are already happening. So we invite your listeners to go to our website, which is political-innovation.org, and there they can get all the information on you know, our work on politics industry and on our book and on our report and data and information that will help them in their evangelizing, but they can also connect with us so that we can help them move from buying into the theory and the prescription for change to becoming leaders in their states. And it's hard, but not as hard as anybody would think. So if someone hears a call in the, who's listening, please get in touch with us. And I have a team here that will help you get started in your state. Michael Porter, Catherine Gale, thank you so much for writing such a provocative and insightful book. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Debbie. What a pleasure. Michael Porter and Catherine Gale's new book is titled The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy, and is available wherever books are sold. You can read more about their work at galeporter.com. Gale is spelled G-E-H-L. You can also go to the website that Catherine just recommended at political-innovation.org. This is the 16th year we've been broadcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Heffler & Co. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.